Hello, and welcome to SimCast, the higher education simulation podcast. My name is Tony Jeremy. I'm the academic lead for clinical skills and simulation in the School of Health Sciences at UEA Norwich. Hi, my name's Lawrence Hill, and I'm the chair of the school's simulation group here at UEA Norwich. So, Lawrence, this episode we've titled Planning Sim Using Shell to Plan Your Sim Sessions. Yes, we have. And we are going to, we mentioned Shell in a previous uh, SimCast. And we wanted to use this SimCast as an opportunity to show all of you guys out there who are delivering simulation in higher education just how we have chosen to structure organising simulation sessions. Great, thank you. So if you enjoyed this video, please give us a like. Equally so, if you didn't enjoy the video, give us a dislike, but let us know in the comments why. We really appreciate your feedback and we're always keen to try and improve things. If you want to keep up to date with all things sim, please subscribe and don't forget to check that notification bell. All right, so we're actually going to start this uh, SimCast with a little vignette, aren't we? We wanted to try and give it a little bit of context and try and make it feel real and applied. Yeah, okay. So let's get to it then. So in this scenario, we've got Callum. Callum's a new clinical skills lecturer, and he's been tasked with planning the delivery of an advanced life support simulation training to final year BSc paramedic students. Callum's been given an allotted session in an otherwise packed curriculum, and he has to deliver the learning over one day to, let's say, a medium-sized cohort of around 30 to 40 learners. Mm -hmm. Each learner needs to actively participate in the sim in order to satisfy some kind of professional um, regulatory proficiency. Yeah, like okay. you've got to do it to demonstrate, yeah. to go out to practice safely. He, in order to be able to do that in practice, each each paramedic student's got to demonstrate yeah. they can do it. Yeah. So Callan has been given four rooms for the whole day, which he can run the sim in. Uh, some of those rooms are kind of immersive spaces that look like clinical environments. Some are just basic rooms. Mm -hmm. Other than that, other than the room bookings, there is a blank slate. And again, Callum is thinking, well, where do I start? Yeah, so Callum's got a blank sheet of paper. How am I going to get 30 to 40 people through this simulation training experience in a kind of consistent and effective way. Yeah. So there's lots to think about here. There's lots potentially, particularly for a new academic, you could potentially miss. Yeah, definitely. There's tons to think about, isn't there? You've got multiple learners, multiple rooms. You've got uh, to think about all of the the stuff that you're going to need to, to, you know, run effective simulations. You know, it's a, it's, it's a really complex task when you try and break it down. Um, so where would, where would you start? Well, I think historically, and, and looking at it myself, I've thought I've, I've been in that situation. Where I'm like, I need to plan this. I've got all these things. Where do where do I start? And <clears throat> there's lots of potential pitfalls. So I would immediately think, well, I, I'm going to need some help. I, mm. I need some people to be involved, and I'd probably think about that. And I'd get obsessed with thinking about who I need to get. And and then you're like, oh, I've got to get all this stuff. I need all of the equipment. And you're like, oh, okay. So I know I'm going to need a resource mannequin, and I'm going to need some drugs and I'm going to need a response bag. And then you get distracted and you're like, 
what about the rooms? What, what rooms am I going to have to do it in? Yeah, and there might be some things, particularly as a new lecturer, that completely slip your mind altogether. Yeah. So what we're suggesting is using some kind of semi-structured approach, mm. and, and we think that the shell model would be perfect for that. Yeah, we started using it, didn't we, after a, you know a conversation, and it is just a, a really useful tool that we found for, for organising all of the things that you need to think about, that one needs to think about, to make sure that you don't, Drop any balls, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really important because we talk about being a good simulation citizen. And part of that, particularly if you're planning simulation, is making sure that you've really considered things so that if in, in for example, in this situation where you're likely to need help, the people that are, um, are going to be helping you feel like things have been prepared. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you are invited to be a, a educator in a simulation event, when you turn up and everything seems chilled and relaxed and you've got a you know a, a lead instructor giving you a really clear brief and they've got time on their hands and they've allowed time to settle the learners in and sit them down and give them a briefing and everything's where it should be it just engenders this feeling of this is going to be a good day this is going to be a relaxing day i'm going to enjoy it um, and, and learning is going to take place and that filters down to the learners as well doesn't 100%. it 100% it it absolutely does if you get there and you're not entirely sure what you're going to be doing and you're a little bit uneasy and the lead facilitator is a little bit on edge because mm. they haven't quite got all the ducks in a row this sort of the tension starts to build and the students absolutely pick up on that and they feel it and then they get nervous. Yeah, absolutely. So if you've been involved in a really well-planned sim, we'd love to know what made the difference. So again, just stick some ideas in, in the comments below. Yeah, what is the single thing that makes the biggest difference to you if you turn up as a simulation educator and what is it that, that makes it feel like a well-organized, smoothly run, well-oiled event? Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to, to remember when in, in higher education, we're dealing with individuals, academics who are wearing multiple hats, spinning multiple plates simultaneously, many of which are probably wobbling as well. Yeah. So in, in some situations, people just want to be able to turn up and, and get on with things. Yeah, absolutely right. So what can we do? To, to try and bring some semblance of kind of organisation to this. You know, how, how can we use that shell model to help to structure that preparation okay. for the simulation event? So let, let's break it down in each, into each category. So mm -hmm. if we look at it in terms of the the, the way that the, uh, the acronym works, we'll look at S first, which is for software. So we can yeah. think about this in terms of curriculum design, any kind of piece, pieces of information, any background stuff to make the simulation work. And certainly from a planning point of view, this is quite an important area. Oh, absolutely. You know, you know, we said in, in, in a previous uh, SimCast about the importance of the learning outcomes, about yeah. the learning outcomes being central to the simulation event, any learning event, but, you know, simulation. Um, and making sure that they are, you know, clear and precise and achievable and appropriate for the for the level of the learners is a really important part of getting the software part right. And in in Callum's scenario, the learning outcomes are almost forcing his hand. Yeah, they are for sure. He, they have to. The, the learners will have to demonstrate. This will be a you know the, the one of the action verbs you'd expect to find in this set of learning outcomes is going to be demonstrate yes. um, because everyone has to do it. So that has a bearing, the, the software, the learning outcome has a bearing on the kind of way that uh, Callum's going to need to organise this simulation event. Yeah. So we know he's got four rooms, 
we know there is the likelihood with the co- the size of the cohort size, 30 to 40 learners, that there's going to be multiple rooms of simulation happening simultaneously. It doesn't have to be like that, mm-hmm. but it's probably the best way to deal with a larger size cohort, mm. uh, particularly with the limited time that Callum has. Yeah. So for me, because we're going to need other people, a big part of software is that early correspondence, getting the emails out there, making sure that the communication is nice and clear so that if anyone has given up their time to, to come and help as a simulation facilitator, they're really, really nice and clear in terms of what the requirements are, how long they're needed for, all of those little pieces of information. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, we know that the academics delivering simulation or if you've got, you know, um, visiting lecturers or associate tutors or flying faculty coming in, you know, in an ideal world, you know, you'll you'll have all of the the information for them prepped and ready in advance. You know, the the intended learning outcomes for each of the simulations, perhaps the clinical course of the of the some of the simulations, how the day is going to run, timings, that kind of thing, to manage expectations, so that those people coming in are going to have a, a clear sense of what they can expect from the day. So you set out with those intentions of having that ready and prepared in advance. It might mean the difference actually between someone saying yes and no, because if they can dip out at lunchtime to attend to other things, which is often the way with with academics in Mm -hmm. in higher education, Mm -hmm. that might mean the difference between them saying yes or no, or even just saying, well, I can help you for the morning, but not the afternoon. And that just gives Callum options, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So having that information early doors and, and also having it prepped and ready to go, you know, a week or a couple of weeks in advance, having already booked these people to come and, and facilitate, um, you know, the, the hope is that they're going to have the time to review this stuff. But also, I think as, as the lead facilitator, we have to have an expectation that people might not. Mm. necessarily have the time to do that preparation and to do that reading. So we've got to make double sure that we've got it absolutely nailed in terms of how it's going to run. So being a good simulation citizen in this <clears throat> this respect is doing plenty of planning so that people have the information ahead of time, but also planning for the fact that as busy, busy, busy academics or other individuals, they might well just turn up unprepared. Yeah, sure. And, and that's okay. And we have to, and part of the, the software planning, part of getting the information right is planning that schedule for how you're going to run the students with perhaps a little bit of flexibility. Because it's not necessarily just the, the uh, faculty that are going to come in and throw you maybe a couple of, not, I don't want to say curveballs, but, you know, introduce variables. Mm. The learners might as well, you know, you might find that actually what should be a cohort of 30, you know, there's been a some kind of breakout of some kind of illness and actually you've, you're down to 30. So so building some flexibility into that software, that planning phase is, is important too. But you've got, let's say, 40 students coming to this session. What are your choices in terms of how you structure that day? <clears throat> it's an interesting one, isn't it? There's a, there's a couple of ways you could look at it. I think because everyone has to actively be involved, Callum's options are a little bit more limited. <clears throat> he needs to get through the numbers. Mm-hmm. So he's going to have to run rooms of simulation simultaneously. Yeah. If they didn't have to all actively be involved, you could have a room with the simulation linked to a debrief space, for example. And if you've got the luxury of having an audio-visual solution, which means that you can watch and stream things remotely, there's a different approach to it. Mm. Uh, again, both have got positives and negatives in terms of how simulation is delivered, the learning that comes from it. And again, 
going without wanting to sound like a broken record, it, it, it again depends on what your learning outcomes are. Yeah. If it's more of a focus on non-technical skills, the observer role becomes much more powerful than actively participating. Mm -hmm. So there are options there. Yeah, I mean, Callum could bring all 40 learners in at nine o'clock. Yes. Run uh, a set of, you know, a number of simulations over the course of the morning, break the students for lunch, and then run the run another set of scenarios in the in the afternoon or another set of simulations or he could split the cohort into two and do kind of an am pm session yeah and and it's going to depend doesn't doesn't it on what you want to get out of that session how much you think is enough exposure in order to hit those learning outcomes yeah and each of those those setups may end up having different uh different um, what, what am I trying to think of? Different requirements in terms of faculty resourcing uh, and equipment and those kind of things as well. Mm -hmm. So there's there's diff lots of different ways to skin a cat and the same can be said for how, you know, planning simulation in that respect. Yeah, no, definitely. So if I were Callum, I think what I'd be looking at would be a, an AM and a PM session. Okay. Um, I'd have half the learners come in in the morning. So I've got 20 learners coming in in the morning and I'll have 20 learners coming in in the afternoon. It makes things more manageable, particularly if you've got four rooms. Yeah, particularly if you've got four rooms. So we'd be looking at five, five. students per group. And if um, a couple of students dropped out, what I might have is I might say, actually, you know what, I'm going to peg this back to three rooms. I'm going to give one of my faculty... The, the gift more, of free time. The gift of free yeah. time this morning or this afternoon. Uh, and what academic isn't going to say, yes, no please, to, that, to yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. So um, so that, that's how I would, I think, organise it to start with. Um, and then I'd probably go from there. So that would be my kind of template plan would be AM and PM, half the, half the learners morning, half the learners in the afternoon. It's, that sounds sensible. Yeah. But, you know, it's not the only way to do it, but it certainly sounds like a sensible solution to the, the conundrum that Callum's in. Let's move on because we do need to go through the rest of the mm. shell model. So hardware. So undoubtedly, Callum needs to book some kind of equipment to do the physical aspect of advanced life support. And, and the likelihood is he's going to use an ALS level patient simulator to, to achieve that. Yeah, it's really important to plan the equipment that you intend to use to the intended learning outcomes of the simulation. If, you know, what Callum's going for here is a kind of immersive, interactive, authentic type simulation, that there are definitely disadvantages to using, you know, just the sort of head and torso mm. of a Rassassian. Because immediately we're trying to generate this fiction contract with 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 students, and they'll see that, and already the kind of the spell is broken in terms of in terms of simulation buy-in. So thinking about what sort of level of fidelity, if you will, what kind of level of I don't know quality of the of the actual physical hardware is kind of important. Because if this was just a part-task training, if you were just, if Callum just wanted people to practice their BLS, it wouldn't be a great deal of point in asking the, you know, the support team, the the, the simulation technicians to, to haul out all of the super Gucci uh, expensive equipment. Um, that would be unnecessary. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of technicians, the likelihood is, again, in most simulation centres, there will be some kind of technical support. Mm to help you with that. Mm. What does Callum need to think about in terms of booking equipment? Yeah, great question. So, you know, we're in a, Callum may be in a busy simulation centre as as we are, and as I'm sure many people are who are listening onto this, who there may be competing demands on that, on that equipment. Um, so 
the earlier really that it's is possible to to communicate to these these lab technicians or the simulation technicians roughly what kind of equipment is needed and the time frame that it's needed is going to allow them to uh, balance the needs of the simulation centre to make sure that you know one group of students doesn't end up with all of the equipment and mm. another ends up really impoverished mm. in terms of access to equipment. So, so having that conversation with with uh, Simtex and saying, guys, this is what I want to achieve. You know, what do you think? Um, is but, they're, it, but they're obviously the experts in the field when it comes to that. You know, what this patient simulator can and can't do what equipment might be available and also their knowledge and understanding of what else is happening on different programs, different curricula, different times of the day, those kind of things. Yeah. And, you know, as the, as the educator trying to organize this simulation event, we're thinking about our shell model, which is, you know, the equipment that I need, the people that I need, the rooms that I need, but more often than not, somebody in that kind of, in that lab technician simulation technician model is looking at their own the, shell model the bigger picture the bigger shell model yeah. which is how do all of these competing yeah. programs kind of slot in so um so having that conversation just make sure that what we're doing which needs to be an effective learning experience doesn't compromise somebody else's when does callum have this conversation as early as he can, but yeah. probably not years in advance. <laughs> I mean, like, what, probably six months, you know, three months, maybe? It, it needs to um, be early, doesn't it? It needs and to I've, be early. I've, I've, uh, I've seen both happen. I've seen really good planning where the, the technical team are involved nice and early. Yeah. And surprise, surprise, things tend to run quite smoothly. Yeah, one of the technical guys in uh, here at, at UEA came up with a with a great, a great comment in discussion about this recently. And, and you know, he said... You know, you wouldn't ask an academic to teach a session with two days notice. No. You would give them enough time to prepare, to think about it, to situate the session within the wider curriculum. And I think it's really fair to say that exactly the same kind of principles apply to the technical side. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things that I've learned a great deal from in terms of working closer with our technical team is it's not just about grabbing a piece of kit and equipment from a shelf somewhere. Nice. There is so much more involved that, as an academic, I don't even think about. No, like, for example, something that I really have learned to appreciate as part of, you know, this simulation centre becoming increased in complexity is the amount of work, the unseen work that goes on after the session finishes. Like, four o'clock, simulation ends, and we're like, great. That's fantastic. Great day of simulation, everyone. Thanks very much. But the tidy up just begins. Yeah, and the prep for the next day. Yeah. And so, you know, if someone then has added a request 24 hours before my simulation starts, these lab tech guys are now having to think about how they then reconcile that request with everything that was already planned for the next day. And and that very quickly adds up to, you know, at risk of being unreasonable demands or at least stressful demands yes. that can be avoided. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Just finally on hardware, it's, it just, it's just worth bearing in mind if you are using the technology and you are unfamiliar with it, you might, you might need extra help from the technical team in terms of actually support running it during a simulation. And depending on where you work, that support may or may not be unavailable depending on what the technical team do. But it's just, again, something worth bearing in mind. It's also worth bearing in mind that this is where we have a software-hardware interface that actually some of that technical support could indeed happen at a time in advance if perhaps you've got some of that tech support and so, you're looking at programming scenarios yeah. so that you've got clinical courses already programmed in. Um, but you can't do that 
on the morning or in the week before because yeah. it takes time like <clears throat> computer programming Particularly does. if you then have to then replicate that over four rooms, four yeah. different pieces of kit and equipment. Um, the, the scenarios might have to be loaded on. I bet you can't copy paste that. No, absolutely not. Okay, let's move on to environment. So this was the bit where Callum kind of had some help because the rooms had already been booked. But getting the right rooms and timetabling them, particularly in the busy simulation centre, I mean, it's a whole podcast in itself, is, yeah, is trying to timetable. Yeah. Oh, the, so when we set up this simulation centre, when the School of Health Sciences at, at UEA set up the simulation centre, we, we very soon realised that a huge amount of the conversation in the early days of our simulation group, so we have a, a group which has representation from all of the, the kind of key programs, all of the programs really, the technical support, local support team. Um, we realised early on we were going to have to spend a long time talking about timetabling. Rooms, resources, those kind of things, yeah. Because the environment itself, the physical space, the accommodation in which simulation needs to take place is essential. Um, and if left too long, it becomes, you know, a major hurdle or bottleneck in terms of delivering what you want to deliver. Yeah, one of the challenges that we've faced is, again, the programmes that we support quite often will be, in terms of internal organisation, is, is siloed in its approach. And that's one of the things that we've tried to achieve with the SIM group is to try and break down those those barriers. But even with a active participation and involvement with that is it, still really, really challenging because of just the, the day-to-day running of programmes and courses in, yeah. in higher education. It's the nature of, of complex systems that you can yeah. try and reduce it, but it's not that easy to completely do that. So getting that booking ahead of time and whenever, you know, your institution does that pro- process, it's thinking, managing to get far enough ahead to think, how do I want to deliver this session? Do I need three rooms? Do I need four rooms? Do I need six rooms uh, in order to do what I need to do? Yeah. So Callum's hand has been forced. Yeah. Let's say there's four rooms available and there's, n- there's nothing else available. And in, in our vignette, Callum had a mixture. So somewhere like high immersion, high reality, look and feel like a real clinical setting. Others akin to maybe a seminar room or what, whatever room was available. Mm-hmm. Does, what, how does Callum think about planning this in terms of ensuring equity mm. of the space, which arguably could be really influential in terms of the level of fidelity and immersion that a learner might experience in a simulation session like this? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question and um, not necessarily a straightforward one to get completely right. You know, affording students that equality of opportunity in terms of access to the best equipment um, is something that we have to wrestle with and uh, and to try and get right. Um I'd suggest that one way that Callum could approach this problem is to rotate the students around the different groups, yeah. the different rooms, which in turn introduces Complexity, fre- fresh challenges. Timings, in- those kind of things all need to be considered. Yeah, because these things always take longer than you think. Yeah. You know, someone needs to get a drink or the facilitator needs to go and get a cup of tea or, you know, there's there's normal human stuff that needs to happen in between simulations taking place. Um, and having students move around the building, it depends how far apart these rooms are. Um, so yeah, so so factoring that in is 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 kind of important. So I would say probably Callum ought to maybe apply a kind of a stoic principle here and just think actually, what is essential for mm-hmm. me to do in order to hit these learning outcomes, um, and can I do less, better 
rather than perhaps having, you know, 10 different space, well, you've got four different spaces, but, you know, are there two equivalent rooms? Is mm. it possible to do two scenarios in, in, the, in the low tech room and then two in the high tech room? Is there a way that he can rotate the students around in such a way that they get something approaching an equitable experience? Yeah. And, and what Callum might need to do is run run it, see how it works, and then reevaluate for next time. Because mm-hmm. they'll, they'll, there's undoubtedly some kind of learning to, that they might glean from this. Yeah, exactly. The worst thing that can happen is that he's going to learn something for next time. So we've kind of got here, we've got a, uh, in, uh, a software environment interface in terms of what Callum needs to do, planning and thinking about the space. You you talked about um, timings. So I just want to just go off on a tangent slightly. Would you build much redundancy into your day, into your AM or your PM session in terms of thinking about if there is a delay or if this simum overruns or, you know, do you drop the fourth scenario if you've run out of time? How would you plan that? Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because... If, as is the case, the Callum's trying to do, he wants to organise kind of, if we're thinking about the scale of um, simulation kind of learning experiences from sort of pure theory, which wouldn't really be simulation, to sort of part task training to full simulation, as we kind of increase in the fidelity, there is much more likelihood of um, quite profound unintended learning outcomes coming out. There might be a really there might be a need for a very deep debrief in what happens in maybe that first or that second And also simulation. an increased risk of things not going to plan. Yeah, absolutely. There might be something significant that happens. Or alternatively, learners might be super well prepped. They might have a high degree of confidence and competence coming into the simulation. And actually, they might run through the first one, two and three simulations. And you're actually kind of, as the as a sort of, Similar as the lead facilitator, you might be kind of reassured that, you know, actually they, they're, they're doing okay. Running another kind of repetition of the simulation might not actually help contribute to these, these learners going away with a sense that they've achieved something and they've done well. So I would say we shouldn't just slavishly stick to the, to the, to the plan uh, and actually be prepared to flex it and adjust it if needs be. And the same goes if this first scenario goes completely pitong and, you know, we've got, you know, big feelings that need to be picked up from the students and maybe some serious clinical issues that mm. occur. We have to spend the time unpacking that and be ready to maybe flex that second simulation and say, do you know what, we're going to learn more from unpacking this simulation than we might from just running another one. Yeah, and I've definitely been in the situations before where we have been slaves to the format. Mm-hmm. And so we've had to run the four scenarios. And unfortunately, whatever what always gets compromised in that is the debrief mm-hmm. that gets cut short. And, and of course that's where, uh, you know, arguably a majority of the learning takes place. Yeah. So having that flexibility is, is really, really important. We, we see this, we see this, uh, and I don't mean to digress, but we see this on on teaching on Resource Council ALS courses as it's well. It's jam-packed, isn't it? It's so intense. There's so much to get through. And if there are learning points, it's often that, that debrief that gets squeezed. And, you know, it's really nice to ensure that you've got the flexibility in your timetable because you're not constrained by a one-day ALS course kind of format where you've got, you know, 10 hours to get through the whole yeah. thing. Actually... We choose as the organisers of these simulations how they're organised. There's not like a preset national format that has to be stuck yeah, to for various yeah. reasons. 
so we should use that and to you know use a bit of creativity and flexibility to 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 do to be just that so flexible. Ca- Callum needs to make sure that that it, that point is captured quite nicely in the faculty briefing at the yeah. beginning of the session. You know, particularly if, if multiple rooms are running simultaneously, and this is a nice segue into liveware. So looking at the facilitators, who they've got, the level of ability, and how well they're briefed. Yeah. So let's move on to liveware. So. Callum needs some help and support. He needs some facilitators. He put the call out in plenty of time and has got some responses. Yeah. So what do we need to consider? Well, I mean, for a start, we've got got two, at least two groups of liveware. So we have the faculty side and we have the student or the learner side as well. So focusing on the facilitators for a second, um, you know, and within that, there's all of the the additional staff as well. The uh, you know the technical support mm. and potentially potential confederates. But in terms of those facilitators, thinking about who you've got and thinking about what the intended outcomes are for any given. If you've got someone who's a you know an expert in hypothermia, you know, or they've you know, they've got some experience of wilderness medicine, having them in the hypothermia scenario makes sense to me okay so you might want to kind of try and align people's expertise with the particular scenarios they're running so it sounds like we're moving in a situation where Callum has got certain rooms for certain scenarios and maybe even facilitators for those scenarios in that room and then individuals the learners will then rotate through the different scenarios because you could have it where the learners stay in the same room you run four different scenarios you have the same facilitator. And again, there's pros and cons to both, isn't there? Oh, definitely. If you've got the same facilitator, you build a rapport up throughout the afternoon or the morning, and that might help with learners' concerns around evaluation, apprehension, that kind of thing. Yeah, it will probably help to sort of flatten the hierarchy as well, if there is one, that over time that's just going to kind of level out. But they may not have, like you say, the prerequisite expertise to facilitate a, a particular scenario, particularly if it's uh, like a niche area. Yeah. With another, p- another potential, you know, disadvantage there is that um, the, the, you might have kind of quite a variation in those different characters. You know, you might have some of these facilitators who are really sort of dove-like facilitators and everything's marvelous and well done. And you might get others who are real hawkish kind of severe um, kind of facilitators, or and even you might even get the uh, the velociraptor. <laughs> yeah, the velociraptor <laughs> facilitator is you know often these people are super um, accurate and you know and, and really kind of profoundly good at what they do, um, and sometimes through that can be a little bit fierce and a little bit kind of hard. And it's good to get that. It's good to get that mix of experiences. If you've if you've got one room. <laughs> with the Velociraptor for the whole yeah. morning or afternoon, they might come out of it yeah, battered exactly. and bruised. Exactly. And <laughs> equally, if you if you spend the whole day with with your dove-like facilitator, yeah, all you're gonna get you is, might come out yeah. feeling really wonderful, but perhaps you know not have achieved some of the learning outcomes that maybe some more of the hawkish facilitators might have picked out. Maybe the slightly more critical might say, well, actually, you know, how long were you off the chest in that particular situation? And, you know, what was the rest of yeah. your team doing at that stage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think you need that mix. So that kind of blend of experience is kind of part of it. And, and each facilitator will have different kind of turns of phrase yeah. or little just golden like golden nuggets or little pearls of wisdom that you don't want people to miss out on. So I'm going to ask a loaded question here, which I think I already know the answer to. How many people does Callum have in a room as a facilitator? And let's be realistic. Yeah. So as in terms of, 
In terms of facilitators, I think the reality of being a simulation educator working in higher education is that you are going to be pegged back to a single facilitator. Okay. I think that's the truth, isn't it? You know, we might want to have someone who's running the tech and another person who's, who's facilitating the sim and the debrief. But the reality is, is that it's probably going to be you and you're going to be wearing multiple hats. Yeah, you, you're going to need a large faculty if you've got, what, so we're talking about eight. So if we went two facilitators, which would be lovely, mm-hmm. you, you've got eight facilitators, plus, plus probably Callum, who's trying to organise and coordinate the whole thing maybe some confederates as well the numbers start to, to add up so. if, it, if it wasn't so important that everybody did the simulation so to speak if it wasn't so important that everybody was involved and you could increase the learner groups mm. having a second facilitator becomes much more viable yeah very quickly yeah i personally love a second facilitator it makes things so much easier but i've been in multiple situations where i've been the only one and like you say multiple hats so i'm trying to facilitate I'm trying to brief my participants. I'm trying to get the technology to work seamlessly so it doesn't subtract from the immersion or the reality. And in this situation, it might be queuing up a different uh, arrhythmia or, you know, whether it's a shockable or non-shockable rhythm. I've also got to try and think about really pertinent, important points to come back to in the debrief. Mm -hmm. My, just thinking about it, my, my, Cognitive bandwidth is yeah, <laughs> it's struggling, it, 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 and and it's really hard. You know what we do. You know, simulation is is a really kind of complex metacognitive skill that that takes that, you know, that balance of you know the plate spinning kind of analogy. You have to you have to be ready to do that. So anything I think we can do to to make that job easier, really, Callum should be thinking about. Yeah. So planning the technology so that it is pre-programmed and actually it's it's a few button presses rather than changing things on the fly which yeah. a, you know a lot of the patient simulators or the uh, the arrhythmia defibrillators those kind of things can they, they have, have have both types don't mm-hmm. they it, it will just mean the facilitation should be a little bit more robust yeah and and yeah i i completely agree that having multiple facilitators is extremely useful um, particularly uh, around debrief as well, mm-hmm. um, because it, it's just so helpful to have that kind of conversation. Co-debriefing is is so beneficial, isn't it? It seems to flatten the or lower the risk of tutorial mode. Yes, because the other facilitator, the other debriefer, can can also help to moderate if the I if mean, the other debriefer you, starts doing you've that. You picked me up on it before. You, you're leaning in. Tony, but, it, but, it, it, but well, we were teaching a simulation course, and and it was, uh, but it, it's a case in point of how actually it's that it's that that extra perspective, yes, um, and that can that can really help too. So, so thinking about the facilitators and their relative expertise and their um, their degree of ferocity as as educators, but also, um, you know, getting a blend of experiences for learners is important. So, again, just a couple of other areas in terms of liveware people that need to be considered obviously we've got the learners themselves so but that goes back to things like learning outcomes we've talked a little bit about technical staff uh, we need to make sure that we've notified them nice and early mm-hmm. we've, we've involved them with the planning and again if they're involved in the delivery it, fantastic as well mm-hmm. actors and confederates 
I, I mean, if I'm Callum and I'm a new academic, I'm thinking straight away, well, I just need a patient simulator because it's an ALS scenario. But how mm. could actors and confederates add realism uh, and, and, and further fidelity to these scenarios? Yeah, I, I, I love using actors and confederates in simulation. And often I'll use that as a way of involving other students in the group and giving them a role. So playing the part of, of concerned family members or lay people or bystanders, delivering chest compressions, just adding in, you know, aspects of normal clinical practice that make it feel more authentic. You know, having to ask someone to stop so that you can confirm cardiac arrest yeah. is yeah. a really, because that's the thing, the sort of thing that happens out there in the real world. You know, someone's, do, you know, enthusiastically doing chest compressions on someone who perhaps may or may not have a cardiac output giving students the opportunity to rehearse that. Oh, thank you very much. You're doing a great job, but could you just stop for me a second? Um, is really useful in the same way that, you know, the family member, you know, the person there perhaps who, you know, is able to provide a little bit of history about what's happened or to um, maybe not interfere and inter intervene, but to be there and to be mm. part of the dynamic that needs to be managed. And, and for Callum, as he's dealing with third year, students we can assume that there's a certain amount of prerequisite knowledge and expertise they've got some concrete experiences they've probably been on placements so he could legitimately look at using learners in that actor confederate role whereas if it was a first year student might be thinking well i might need another facilitator or even you know an actor to play that role because the level of knowledge base and and, and confidence to deliver a really important role in simulation might be lacking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, being aware of of the students, the student body as liveware and what their, you know, relative experience is. Fantastic performances from, oh, from yeah. learners in the past. You know some 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 learners really enjoy that, don't yeah. they? They really enjoy the opportunity to get into role and, and to do stuff. And it does add to it and it makes it more fun. And again, like we said on the previous video, simulation should it should be serious, but it should be fun. It should be immersive. Yes. It should yeah. be something that people kind of look forward to doing, not necessarily something they feel like they've got to do. The last thing that Callum could consider, and this is a luxury, it really is, particularly in higher education, is whether he has any support staff to help him with the organisation and planning. Mm. And again, it's just making sure that the, the simple things like communication is, is really nailed down, uh, that the messages go out there and uh, <clears throat> how the support staff can help Callum with organising it, but it is a is a luxury. Yeah, and it, it may not be that um, available, depending on, you know, the organisation that you work for, the resources that you have to hand. But certainly, if you've got a clear idea of what you want to plan and you've got someone who can help you administer that, then that is going to help to bring everything together. Okay, thank you. Talking of bringing it all together, um, we should probably try and sort of round it up and, yeah, and bring it, feels it to like a we've close. come to a natural conclusion. Yeah. We've gone through the shell model. We by no means have covered everything. And, and I think what we can kind of take away from the, the, the video is that planning simulation is incredibly complex. As with many things in simulation, there's lots and lots of things to consider. So having some kind of structure to plan that round, it can be really, really beneficial. I completely agree. And using software, hardware, liveware and environment as a model for doing that, just make sure that in the way that we've approached that task, we don't make too many errors. Hopefully. <laughs>
If you're watching and you think there's anything obvious that we've missed, please pop it in the comments below. Yeah, or if you've got a alternative way of organising your simulation events and you think we're missing a trick, let us know because we'd love to hear about that. So thank you so much for watching. We hope you found it interesting and we can't wait to see you in the next one. Thanks very much, folks. Bye for now.